Hello and welcome to And That's It featuring Juno and Derek. I'm Derek. I'm Juno and we're best friends and we talk about stuff. And today we're talking about An American Werewolf in London, the other 1981 werewolf movie. Now originally there was supposed to be a game episode between the previous episode on the howling and this that audio is being weird so that episode will probably come out after this one and this one might just come out tomorrow as in uh the day after we're recording this instead and that episode will probably come out next week nevertheless it is a thing we can talk about for you know about 60 to 90 minutes certainly because of some aspects of it that uh really really uh stuck with me let's say before we get into An American Werewolf in London, Juno, have you watched anything good lately? Have you watched anything lately? Just what have you been watching? What culture have you been consuming? What media have I been consuming? Not a lot, to be totally honest with you. Um, I watched Letterkenny with my family, which is excellent. I think everybody should watch it. It's very funny, very witty. Um, and other than that, TikToks. <laughs> videos on twitter like truly nothing the, the last two movies that i watched were american werewolf in london and the wolf of snow hollow which are movies that we are talking about this week yes. so today and tomorrow <laughs> yeah i watch I've, I've really slowed down since the new year started last year i watched 284 movies that's i'm not reaching that this year <laughs> that is not so recently though i have watched a couple movies that i think are worth mentioning i watched angel heart which is this neo-noir crime thriller from the 80s with mickey rourke and uh robert de niro really really good really good movie highly recommend it's on hbo max i mean i'm sure it's other places too but that's where i watched it just great, devastating, horrifying, beautiful movie. I love movies that are secret horror movies. Like, <laughs> man, there's an angle in Angel Heart that is totally unexpected for the first, like, two-thirds of it, and then they drop a bomb on you in the last third of it about, like, what's really going on, and man, I was so on board. I love movies that turn into other movies halfway through. <laughs> Another movie I watched recently that I think is definitely worth checking out is the movie Spree, starring Joe Keery and Sashir Zameda. It is uh, streaming on Hulu, which is where I watched it. It's kind of in the unfriended, searching vein of movies that are like recorded on a screen. Unlike those, which both take place in laptops, this is takes place on a phone, a phone and a couple other screens throughout the movie. I mean, phenomenal performances from Joe Keery and Sashir Zameda. And even though I think it's like take on social media isn't really fresh, it gets pretty brutal at some points. So it's still a great watch. Definitely something you can throw on. It's only like 90 minutes. So it's, it's, a, it's an easy enough watch. And I think it has some really interesting things to say about like toxic masculinity and white men that are you know never out of style to say so those are uh two movies i've watched recently everyone check out letter kenny and angel heart and spree actually another movie i'm going to be recommending is an american werewolf in london i watched it yesterday totally shocked by how much i like this movie 
I think this is the movie I wanted The Howling to be. (laughs) I was, I have a lot of notes and kind of some thematic stuff I'd like to touch on, which kind of get to the reasons of why I connected with this movie so much. This is, as of now, my favorite movie we have watched this season. New Moon, I was thinking about it because I was like, well, New Moon, but New Moon is purely nostalgia for me. So I have to, I have to acknowledge that. We still have to watch both Wolfmans. So we'll see how those kind of stack up in comparison. But as of now, this is my highest, like if we were ranking the movies, this would be at the top for me because... I just really like this movie. <laughs> That's so interesting. I'm excited to hear about your takes on it. Because I personally, I mean, taking with a grain of salt, because it did come out in 81, I was sort of like, ugh, Americans, fuck off. And then the rest of the movie, I think, was tinged by that opinion. But I did really like it. And I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it. Right. I think, I hope I'm able to help you see at least a little bit from my point of view. Because there are specific reasons why... I really connected to some of it. So I am going to pull up my notes. Yeah. And you know, then you can start whatever you want on your plot synopsis. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the movie starts out and we meet two backpackers and they are driving in the back. Or they're not driving anywhere. They're riding in the back with a bunch of sheep um, from a farmer's truck. Yeah, they're, they're in a, a truck. Mm-hmm. Love that. I do too. I honestly like think that would be such a fun way to travel but I don't even know how I would approach a farmer. Just to be like, hey, can I just get in there with them? Like, right. Just it was somewhere? the 80s. Right, the 80s. Everybody trusts everybody. Right. So we open up, and it's, like, beautiful. Like, the scenery looks really nice. It's somewhere rural-ish. Rural so enough to have sheep. It's, um, the movie opens, and they incorrectly state they're in Northern England. They're actually in Wales. Um, <laughs> so I'll make that distinction. But that. Like, it makes sense that an American in the 80s might not know that. So they're in the Moorlands in Wales. Gotcha. Yeah, so we, we meet the two Americans, and they're clearly backpackers. And they get out of the truck, and the farmer is like, hey, stay away from the moors. Don't be outside at night. And they're like, whatever. Yeah, okay, sure. And they are walking and walking and walking, because they're, where are they trying to get? They're just kind of backpacking through Europe. Yeah. They want to go to Italy. And they say, they're like, Northern England first, which again, they're in Wales. <laughs> I do think they eventually want to get to London, but they don't get there how they think they're going to get there. Okay, yes, they're, they don't walk to London, as maybe was planned. Well, so, I, don't, I don't think they were planning on walking to London. <laughs> they don't hitchhike to London. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, they're walking and it starts to get dark and it starts to rain. Yeah. It doesn't start to rain until after they leave. After they leave. Right. So it's just starting to get dark. So they find a pub. Yes. Called the Slaughtered Lamb. And mm-hmm. it is a gnarly sign. It's bloody head of an animal and another. Is it a, is it a wolf's mouth? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a wolf's mouth with blood coming out of it. And you're like, oh, appropriate. Nice, nice, nice. And they roll in and it's just awkward. They're two loud Americans. They're carrying giant backpacks. Everybody in there clearly knows each other already. Right. I was, I couldn't help but think of Hostel when I was watching because, like, they're two awkward Americans and there's unfriendly Europeans everywhere. Yeah. And so I was like, hmm, Hostel vibes, even though this came out 23-ish years before that. 
Yeah, so um, the main characters' names are David and Jeff. They yeah. are loud and annoying and asking for things that these kind of cold shouldery English And people. they're horny. Yes. You can't forget that. They are horny. They talk about a really mediocre looking girl that Jack likes, but David thinks is just okay. Yeah. Really sets the stage for who they are as men, I think. Right. Also, I don't know what age they're supposed to be in this. At the time of shooting, I know that uh, both actors' names are slipping my mind. I'll check in a second, but um, David uh-huh. is 30, and Jack is 27 when they're shooting this movie. That is, like, too old to be backpacking in the 80s. I feel like at that point, you're supposed to, like, have settled down and have a family. Maybe. Maybe our view of the 80s is skewed because we were very much not alive. You were negative 19 years old. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyways well, yeah well i don't know because what they're they know this girl from school so maybe they're supposed to be in college right and then you know 30 year olds have been playing young 20 year olds forever i was just remarking that i don't know how old they're actually supposed to be because their ages aren't given yeah i took it based on the nyu shirt he has that they're supposed to be recent college grads Hmm. And this is like their trip before they have to go into the real world. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I, I can so, see so that. So they should be like 22, 23. Yeah, especially if David like links up with Alex and like she's a young nurse. That would make sense that they're in their like mid, early 20s. Yeah. Okay, yes. So um, David and Jack are in the pub. They want food. There's no food. They want coffee. There's no coffee. They want tea. There's no tea, but the bar, the bar person, is she a bartender? Her as a barmaid. That seemed... Me too, and then I was like, is that sexist? I don't know. I, don't, I think that's just the title of the job. Because she's not just a bartender. Like, she is doing other things. So that's why I was like, she's a barmaid. Yeah. Well, the lady who owns slash works at this bar, this right. pub. She, is... She's the behind-the-counter yes. person. The behind-the-counter person. Um, is like super cold shoulder and she's like, no food here, no coffee, just bruised. <laughs> like, oh, okay. But then eventually she like makes some tea and they have cute little teacups, which are so out of place in this bar that literally has a five pointed star on the wall. Right. I want to say that's about. one thing I really appreciated about this movie, um, is the humor. It's really yeah. funny. It is funny. They have some really good zingers in it. Yeah, and there's also a lot of irony in it, too, in terms so I always appreciate that, and, you know, oh, we didn't go over any production stuff. Um, I'm not going to take time to do that now. I just want to note that if you're familiar with the other works of Max Landis, not Max Landis, that's the rapist son, sorry, John Landis, not his creep son, Max, it makes sense. Uh, he did, like, Animal House, uh, coming to America, Blues Brothers, like, so if you're familiar with the work of John Landis, the, the humor in this movie, the style of it, would it's not, like, out of place, even though it is, like, a horror movie, it's still, you know, related. Yeah, it's funny. It's clever. I think it's clever in, like, understated ways. Yeah, so they're at the pub. Um, they're feeling pretty unwelcome. They're, like, trying to talk to the other people who are there, and the other people are, like, 
we don't want to talk to you, fuck off. Yeah. But like in like they're a cold reception. Yeah, they're not real welcome there. So when Jack, the um shorter, skinnier, yeah, I don't know. He's a shorter one. When Jack the shorter one is like, hey, what's up with the five-pointed star on the wall? Everybody is like, don't talk to us. Like, shut up. We're, we're not on about it. So then they're like, okay, well, clearly we're not welcome here. We're going to buggy. And the barmaid, and, I'm just going to keep calling her the barmaid. It's what it is. Yeah, I, you're fine. <laughs> uh, the barmaid, like, tries to stop them. She's the only one who's like, you can't let them leave. You can't let them leave. And all the men are just like, go. Get out. Yeah. She's I mean, like, you won't let them go. And all the guys are like, let them go. Get out of here. We'll pay for your tea. And like, they do say, like, you know, beware the moon and stay off the road. But like, come on. In the grand scheme of things, what the fuck is that? <laughs> it's like you're in the moors of Wales. You can't avoid the moors. You're in them. Yeah. You can't avoid going off the roads. It's nighttime. Like, there's just a lot of things that I think these pub goers are like, fuck these two dudes. We don't care if you get bitten by a werewolf, but then they do care later. Yeah, to a degree. Yes, carriage. Yeah, so Jack and David leave. They're walking. It starts to rain. They're still talking about ladies. They wander off the roads because of course they do. It's a movie. Um, and they start, they hear a sound and the sound is a not awesome sound. And then Jack is attacked by a werewolf. Right. And he's like attacked. He like is the like going in on him. It is it's gross. real bloody. It's gory, which of course I love. Yeah. Um, I did make a note about that. Love all the gore in this movie. All of it. Agreed. Like when it's I will say when it's like happening the gore looks really good so like jack his attack looks super disgusting and amazing i don't love david i mean this didn't age well because it's you know 40 years ago now but like david's wound makeup when he's in the hospital looks so fake like so oh, aggressive i love it i love it it just i mean i like it if it was intentional i don't like it because i'm like i could peel that off that's clearly clay i don't care i think it's cool. but anyway i'm getting ahead of myself yeah so jack is mauled to death and David is like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Like, what the hell do I even do? Right. Well, David runs. And yes. I made a note here. <laughs> wow. Because David is running while Jack is screaming for him. And then when Jack stops screaming, he's like, fuck, Jack. And so he runs back. My note here was like, I am a fight person, not a flight person. So June and I would both be dead. He certainly would. <laughs> I think that's our biggest, what, is that you're, you're fight and I'm fawn, right? So I will try and appeal to whoever's attacking us. You will attack whoever's attacking us and inevitably we both die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's fine. it's fine. It's just, that's the way of life. But yes, David first is flight. Then he runs back and is like, shit, my friend is probably dead. Tries to go back and fix it. Slightly attacked by the werewolf, but then all of the pub goers finally show up and yeah, like shoot, shoot that bitch. Movie and silver bullets in this movie, I might add. Regular bullets will do. Regular bullets suffice. So yeah, the pub goers come, they shoot him, and then instead of seeing like an animal, like a, a wolf, that like what David was expecting to see, he sees the body of a human being, 
Lying Again, where the also, the bullets did ton of damage to this guy's body. <laughs> there are chunks missing. He's like barely a body anymore. Like now he's pieces yeah. of a human. Anyways, that's that. I think that was when I made the note. Like I love the gore in this movie. <laughs> was yeah, that guy's dead body lying on the ground? Yeah. They don't hold any punches. Like if something happens, you see it happen, and it's gross. Yeah. Also, we'll get to it in a little bit, but there are um, a lot of things about werewolves that are unique to this movie, which I thought was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. I hear you. So David passes out. Yeah. And like that is the end of this scene. And then he wakes up and he's in a hospital. But, but, but we see like two nurses and one of them is like clearly taking care of him. And the other one is being kind of sleazy. Right. So here's where I'm going to pause us for a second. So the nurse, the, the red-headed nurse, the red mm-hmm. curly-haired nurse, you know, is like, I think he's Jewish because she checked his, his penis and he was circumcised. Yes. Uh, yes. And so that's uh, the thing I want to talk about with this movie. It's a very Jewish movie. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on in here. This story essentially happens because they are Jewish. Like... Aside from their names, particularly David, just a lot of the slang they use, like when uh, Jack just walks in when he's in the bathroom, calls him a putz. The fact that they're both from New York, a scene later, which doubles down on it even more, which I won't get into right now, but I'll circle back to. And it was just really interesting because I did not know going in that this was good, that um, Judaism was going to be like a theme. And this isn't the case with like the howling or ginger snaps like lycanthropy isn't a metaphor for anti-semitism in this movie in the way those are mm. their anti-semitism is separate from the werewolf stuff and like the lycanthropy is really an um an analogy for like depression he literally has voices in his head telling him to kill himself how to kill himself like talking about all of his failures and stuff. So, you know, the, the, the werewolf stuff is about anxiety and depression. And then the anti Semitism is just like an added flavor on top of that. Yes. Yeah. I do think that like this does do a good job of establishing like lycanthropy as like an othering agent in ways that like, in like a very blatant way, right? Like in other, in other werewolf movies we haven't talked about. And like we're touching on this that we'll talk about later, but like, we don't see the victims of the werewolves come back and be like, hey, I can't die because you're still alive. Like, your life is prolonging my suffering, which is, like, just so obviously. It's like, okay, well, clearly this is depression and something we need to talk about. But, like, I think that this sets a really good base layer for, like, we're going to talk about the Wolf of Snow Hollow in a future episode. We're talking about it tomorrow, but, like, that's not how it's um, but it's a really good metaphor for the othering and for suffering in like a non-physical way, mm. um, which like is not a, not a connection necessarily that I would associate with werewolf movies, right? Like the grotesque physical pain of it is so easy to take at face value, right. but then you're like, oh my god, this is like a psychosomatic manifestation of internal turmoil. Everything makes sense now. Yeah, and so I'm gonna put a pin because I'm not done with the Jewish conversation. I just want to wait a little bit longer to dive into it fully. Sounds good. Okay. So David wakes up in the hospital. It's been three weeks since the accident. 
Um, the nurses are there. The redheaded nurse does some untoward things and the doctor is like, do you do a job here or are you just here to be a pervert? And then she like runs away. Um, he's interviewed by the police inspector again, reiterates that he doesn't know what happened, but he was attacked by a monster, like an, definitely an animal. Um, and the police inspector is like, no, it was a lunatic, definitely a human being. And David was like, uh, fuck you, no, it wasn't. He's in the hospital. He meets Alex. He and Alex have a connection. Alex is the nurse that takes care of him. She's endearing, beautiful, cutie pie. He's lying in his bed. He falls asleep and dreams of Jack, his dead friend. Mm-hmm. And Jack is in early stages of decay, right? So it's like, he's not dreaming of Jack when he was a human. He's dreaming of Jack's suffering now, which is important to note. And Jack is like, hey, buddy, uh, we were attacked by a werewolf. Now you're a werewolf. I can't die and be at peace until the werewolf bloodline dies, which means you have to kill yourself. And David's like, oh, oh, okay, what? So it's messy. David is sent home, but doesn't have anywhere to go. So he goes to Alex, who he's known for, well, I guess she's known him for three weeks. Spend a little bit of time getting to know each other. Right up. I mean, like, in, like, a professional way, right? Like, I would not call it professional. It should be professional. It's highly unprofessional the way that they get to know each other. But yes. So I still thought it was cute. It's (laughs) it's a cute meet cute, but he's a werewolf. So he doesn't want to eat anything because he becomes a werewolf and goes out and eats in um, uh, some animal and like mulls something. Um, Uh, It's a deer. He eats a deer. Well, that, that isn't real. That's a dream. Yeah, but, like, he, like, has a dream that he's a werewolf, and he, like, satiates himself in that way. So then he doesn't want to eat because he's not hungry. Yeah. And then Alex, like, comes in, and this is their, like, really neat, cute moment. And she, like, feeds him, and she, like, is sitting on his bed with him. And, they, like, it establishes that they both get each other. Like, they're cute. They like each other. Yeah, I like those. Yeah, it's really cute. I do find them endearing. I find Jack, or not Jack, I find David odious. I truly hate him, but I really like Alex and I want want them to be happy. So um, David's going through his internal shit. He and Alex are like sorting themselves out. Um, There's another kid in the hospital who's incredibly adorable and says no to everything. Hmm. I really love the prevalence of Indian people in this movie. Like I get that. I really know that too. I just love it. Like I know that like there's a lot of Indian people in, in London, but like while I was watching, I was like, this is the representation I wanted. I mean, I was like, there's a ton of not only Indian people, but like black and brown people in general. And it really does feel like a big city in a way that a lot of other movies fail. And yeah. that like London feels so diverse. In, and I love all the scenes in London in this movie. I think yeah. it's a great setting. Mm-hmm. It's really good. I, I do really value like, there's, like, diversity in it that, like, American, like, location-based films really fail to hit. Like, a lot of movies based in New York City are so white still. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, if you leave your borough, there's brown people here, too. But, um, yeah, they do a really good job of bringing in diversity in this, even though all the main characters are white. There's still, like, an Indian orderly, an Indian kid in the hospital. Like, it's just, it's good. Um, yeah, so David and Alex are shutting through their shit. And then Dr. Hirsch, who is the doctor that's treating... David and who was like hey like you were mauled by something but it was probably just an insane person goes actually to the slaughtered lamb and was which is the pub that they were in just to like see if what David said was true which I think is like 
a funny overstatement of doctor's investment in their patients. It's like this move is so, I, I don't know, I really liked it. So like he goes to this large lamb, he walks in, he's like playing chess with this one dude who was like super cold shouldery to David. He's like talking to another pub goer at the counter. Um, and they're all like, no, we didn't, what do you mean Americans? There were no Americans here. We don't know anything about that. Nothing happened here. This is just a pub. Like all we sell is alcohol. All we do is like hang out here and talk. Um, he also points out the five pointed star and then they're all like, you need to leave, get the fuck out of here. And he's like, okay, I'm going. Um, and after everybody denies talking to him, except for one of the pub goers is outside and is like, I'm just gonna go tend to the animals. Um, and is actually waiting for Dr. Hirsch when he gets outside. So then he and Dr. Hirsch are having a, a very brief conversation. And the pub goer is like, yeah, David should not have been taken away. Like, we needed to take care of that guy here. Because Dr. Hirsch, um, we didn't touch on this yet, but like, David's wounds had been tended to before he was taken to the hospital. So like, bare minimum, like the pub goers had like, fixed him up the way that he like, to keep him alive. But it was apparent that they like, knew something that most everyday people wouldn't know. Yeah, so the pub goer is outside with Dr. Hirsch, just like talking to him. I love this scene because um, the guy who was playing chess in the pub comes out and is like, stop talking to that doctor. And the way that the pub goer runs away is so funny to me. Do you remember, Derek? I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but I'm, I believe you. It's hilarious. It's, it's like physical comedy, which like we have yet to see. He like, he's wearing like rain clothes because it's raining there. It's like raining while they're talking. He's got his hands shoved in his long raincoat. He's wearing like wellies, like rain, rain boots. And he like runs away in this like weird cantery, like off put, like he looks like a robot. And it's so funny. I, I watched the scene twice in a row. Cause I was like, what is this man doing? <laughs> but yeah, so Dr. Hirsch is like, huh? Maybe this is something I should pay attention to. Uh, because the pub goer is like, everyone will be in danger if David transforms again. So now Dr. Hirsch knows something that David doesn't even know. David goes and moves in with Alex Price, who lives in a one-bedroom apartment. So they're really moving very fast, but they're in love, so it's fine. They have sex, they're like intimate relationship, like they are a partnership. It's fine, except then one night when they're sleeping, David wakes up because he was having bad dreams or like he just wakes up and he's in the living room and Jack comes back and he's talking to Jack again and Jack's in an even further stage of decay. So it's like becoming increasingly apparent that like Jack is not dead. He is actively dying, but cannot die. Or like he's decaying, but cannot die. Mm -hmm. And Jack is like, hey buddy, it's a new moon or it's a, whole, a full moon tomorrow. Really gotta get this, get this thing on lock or more people are going to die. And Jack tells him to kill himself, like, point blank. He's like, just do it. Just kill yeah. yourself. And he was like... This is the second time he said it. He said yeah. it the time he visits him. Yeah. Because Jack, like, you know, I, I, I suppose if you're already dead, and you're like, I know this is the only way to, like, end this suffering and this trauma. Like, just kill yourself. Like, just do it. Which, you know, again, mental health issues. It's a whole thing. David doesn't believe Jack. He's like, I'm just dreaming. Alex wakes up. They have more interactions. And then the next day, Alex goes to work, leaves Jack alone in the apartment, or David alone in the apartment. David's totally fine until, is it evening? Or is it like the middle of the day when he starts to transform? Because Alex is still gone, but is she working overnight? She works till midnight. She specifically says that um, when Dr. Hirsch calls her. Or they're not, he doesn't call her. He asks her to call her, her flat. 
And right, he wants to go visit because David's there, and she says, "I'm off at midnight." Long shift. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's evening when he transforms. Mm -hmm. So it's evening, and his transformation is long and painful and gory. Like right, it's not as gross as the howling transformation, mm -hmm. but it does look more painful. It looks excruciating. And I guess, like, that's the point. Like, it's supposed to, supposedly it is excruciating. Yeah. Um, so it's good that it looks that way. I mean, I think this is the most painful transformation we've seen. I think so, too. Like, Because the only other one I can really think of that would come close is the howling. But that that's, again, more gross than painful. Yeah. And, uh, like, ginger snaps, but that's more gradual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just feels like this one, like, has a lot of lead up to it that the other ones don't. Like, he starts getting really hot and really uncomfortable. Yeah. And so, like, then, like, things start happening. Like, his hands start to swell and his teeth recede and his, like, nails shoot out of his um, fingertips. Like, there's just a lot going on. Yeah. And, like, the way that his body contorts looks really uncomfortable. Right. It is, this scene, I believe, is the big reason why this movie won the first ever Academy Award for special effects. Yeah, it's really good. Was created for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, rightly so. Like, the way that they handle this, like, transformation is really, like, I think they do a, a good job of showing David in, like, emotional pain and in, like, physical, like, achy pain. Like, the way that they show him, like, suffering during this transformation, I think is, like, also, I mean, props to any movie that has the transformation on screen. <laughs> yes, true. Yeah. We can see things because movies are a visual medium. <laughs> right, like so I want to see it happen. Shown things. This, I mean, The Howling does it too. And, you know, that's my, my, the highest praise I had for The Howling was that that transformation scene looked great and was disgusting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but Man, I mean, this one, it's just like, it's unlike anything we've talked about up until this point, really. A lot of the other werewolf transformations are really fast. Yeah. Like, if we look at the Twilight transformation, that's instant. Yeah. Cursed, it's not instant, but it's a lot quicker than this. Yeah, like, it could happen when she, like, jumps... It was fast, yeah. Yeah, and then it like um, Underworld. It also, I believe, was quicker. It, it's just really interesting that like up until our last movie, we talked about all these transformations weren't really part of the story. Yeah, like the transformation itself didn't have any significance. I mean, except for Ginger Snaps, obviously. <laughs> like with that, and then now the howling and this, like the transformation is a significant part of the story. Like, and it has, like, thematic resonance or whatever. <laughs> yes, so David has this incredibly painful transformation in the middle of Alex's living room, mm -hmm. which it looks terrible. And then he's just out. He's out on the town. He kills two people. Mm, he kills more than that. Well, yeah, but he, like, he, the first time that we see him kill people is, like, they're on their way to a dinner party, and he, like... Yes, you're gonna go through, I, I see. <laughs> yeah, so he kills those two people immediately. Mm -hmm. So he yeah. kills the couple. We get that awesome reveal of the severed hand when the guy steps on it. <laughs> it's fucking nasty. <laughs> I mean, the sound is nasty, and he looked down, and 
the hand looks great. I love how bright red all the gore in this movie is. And, and then he kills the businessman in the subway, which yeah. is really my favorite attack scene. Like this, this subway, the tube, as they call it in London, this scene is so claustrophobic. The walls feel tiny. It feels like he is the only person that can fit in this hallway. Yes. And this is like a giant metropolitan area. But the way they film it is so interesting because it literally seems like the walls are closing in on the victim. And oh man, I could talk about the escalator shot like truly for hours. It's He's so good. Later. And because of the perspective, it's really hard to tell if at first, if the escalator is going up or down. I think it's going up but like the perspective is weird so it looks like he's going down which is just such so cool and like he's truly helpless at the end of it like he can't escape and then there's a really funny smash cut to a lion <laughs> and at first I was really confused I was like is there just a lion in the, like in the movie now in the subway but what had happened was he had at the end of his night of terrors just gone to the zoo <laughs> Yeah. Well, he went to the, the wolf like yeah. exhibit of the, the zoo. <laughs> he went to his people. So in between killing the businessman and getting to the zoo, he also killed three homeless men. A scene that was shot and was in the movie for test screenings, but it, it did not test well. People, like, it made them feel bad, so it was cut. Understandable. Yeah. yeah. So we see a whole bunch of zoo animals, which I think is really fun. I really, like, I also... Oh. When they I cut up, as soon as I understood what was actually going on, I was like, oh no, that was that was good. I was just really taken aback for a second. I was like, Yeah, literally. I was like, oh my god, like are they pranking us? Like, is this gonna be one of those things where like we thought David killed him, but it was a lion? No, David did kill him. We're just also seeing a lion. Yeah. So we see like a lion, a tiger, and then we see a whole bunch of wolves, and then there's David's naked body hanging out in the wolf exhibit, and then he's like talking to them on his way out. He's like, oh, I'm just gonna go. I'm just gonna get out of here. This whole, and this also another great sequence is his, uh, he has to get back to Alex's uh, flat now. <laughs> and so first, he hides in some bushes, and this little kid comes over and <laughs> he steals his balloon and then the kid goes up to his mom and he's like mommy a naked american man stole my balloons <laughs> yeah, so he, what, he, he steals the balloons and then he steals like a woman's coat off yeah. the back of the bench yes and then and where then, is he like mom? red coat yeah with like fur like a or like feathers around the neck it is a yeah. looker of a coat and first he goes to a phone booth. Mm. First he goes to a phone booth and he calls his sister. Oh, yeah. Or he calls home and his sister answers. So he talks to his sister. And he almost killed himself. But he can't. He can't bring himself to do it. So then he's in line, I think, for the bus. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't and... figure out why he was still in public in that coat. <laughs> and I mean, comedy gold when there there's a tracking shot of everyone's feet and uh, great stuff, great stuff. This movie's so funny, <laughs> and honestly, great look for him. Truly, he really pulled that coat off. I mean, I think that coat is just a great coat, like the kind of coat anyone could pull off. Mm -hmm. You and I would look great wearing that coat. Like it's hey, just a great you. coat. So. Get one. Yeah, so David eventually, after his public shenanigans, gets back to Alex's apartment. 
um, and then he tries to get himself arrested because so at this point Alex and Dr. Um, Hirsch have like been talking and are like okay well like David is clearly something else and then these bad things happen. Alex doesn't isn't quite on board yet. Yes Dr. Hirsch tells her and she's like he's just a man like okay buddy but who is it that Dr. Hirsch is like talking to about this like the other older guy is he he's not the detective is he the one who's like we'll find him. No, it's the, isn't it the other detective? There's, yeah, there's another guy. He's, I think, another detective. Because there's two detectives. There's the mean one, and then there's the one that gets bullied by the mean one. I yeah. thought it was the other one, but maybe I'm not. So. I don't know. These old British men are, like, conspiracy, conspiring, and they're like, we'll figure this out. So they're, like, trying to find David. David finally makes his way back to Alex's apartment. Alex is like, hey, we need to go see Dr. Hirsch. Like, he can help you. Um, but then David reads the newspaper, figures out that he was behind all of the murders the other day, and is like, fuck, I need to get apprehended. Like, I need to go away. So he tries to get himself arrested. Well, his thinking right now, sorry to cut you off right there, but I have not seen The Wolfman, but he has. And so his thinking right now is based on, like, on the movie The Wolfman and how they go about solving the werewolf problem in that movie. Yeah. I am yeah. watching the 2010 Wolfman for tomorrow, because we're mm-hmm. also talking about that, but uh, <laughs> that's an unimportant detail. No. Uh, but yeah, so it's really interesting, the parallels they draw to that movie, because this movie is technically a remake of the Wolfman sequel, Werewolf of London, so yeah. yeah. Interesting. Interesting. We're not talking about Werewolf of London, but no. yeah, so he, like, he understands the concept of a werewolf. Like, this isn't a movie where, like, like this is st- a world in which the wolfman still exists as a movie. So werewolves exist as fiction in addition to being real. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's like, it's not that the concept of werewolf is unfamiliar to him. He just was like, this isn't a real thing until he uh, bore witness to werewolfhood as himself. Uh, yeah. So he tries to get arrested, doesn't get arrested. The officer is like, fucking go home weirdo and alex is like uh no we need to go see dr hirsch you're killing people (laughs) (laughs) anyways that doesn't really work out no he doesn't quite make it there instead he ends up in an adult movie theater yeah he does this scene was so funny uh because whenever they cut back to they cut back to the porn at one point and a guy walks in (laughs) and then both actors in the porn are like i don't know who you are and then the guy's just like oh sorry and then he leaves it's so funny i like the (laughs) idea of like a porn movie about porn rooms like multiple rooms of porn yeah. Playing in a porn movie theater where multiple rooms of porn. It's just meta. Meta pornography. Yeah. Also, to, he is the only actual like person in the theater, but also there are Jack and also the victims of everyone else he killed. Yes. Yeah. So Jack, he sees Jack again outside the porn, uh, outside the movie theater, which is why he goes in. And Jack is like disgustingly decaying. Like he is gone, gone. Because I mean, at this point, it's been at least four weeks. Right. He's basically just a skeleton. With like sloughs of skin, yeah, left. It's pretty like gnarly, like a full yeah. at this point. Yeah, he um, looks like I a love it. It's great because 
at first I was like, oh, hokey 80s animation, but I actually thought about it. I was like, no, this is what it would look like if we talked and we didn't have our lips because the lips make like the, you know, mm-hmm. they make the shapes that we can visually interpret as letters. So it would literally just look like our teeth opening and closing. Yes. Like that's literally um, just what it would look like. <laughs> yes. Without the like skin and muscle in our mouths, we couldn't really talk. So I think they like, we get to see that visual without having to handle like Jack kind of talking just being like, which is like, because it is still in uh, David's head. We still get to hear Jack's full voice, but it is, it is a great, like, it's a great moment. The whole, honestly, another great scene, this whole, and it works both as like, you know, the comedy part of it, but it also works as part of the narrative structure. So. No, it's a really good scene. And like the way that they're set up. So like uh, David is sitting in the chair and then Jack is sitting next to him. And then the two like- the couple is sitting next to him. The couple sitting on the other side. And then the three oh, homeless men. It's, it's Jack and then the businessman and then the couple. Jack, businessman, couple, and then the three homeless men are like sort of off here, which like makes sense because we didn't really meet them. You can't see what she's doing. What she means is that they're like in <laughs> front. They're like two rows in front of them and then like four seats to the left. Yeah, like, so they're offset, and you're like, yeah. oh, okay, I get it. The like, three homeless guys are, yeah, they're, um, actually, I think they're to the right of them, they're, but they're in front and to the right of them, and then the other three victims are sitting right next to him, and, or four victims, technically, if you include Jack, so it's, just to be specific, it's Jack, businessman, lady, man, and in terms of, like, the couple. Because the the only reason I remember that is because the way this lady delivers all of her lines is so funny. Honestly, that couple is really good. Like, yeah. I find them very interesting. <laughs> but, like, when they're listing different ways to kill yourself, she's just, she, she has such, like, a big smile on her face. And her voice is so, like, chipper. Yeah. And so it works. It works really well for me. Well, yeah, because, so, yes, the reason that they're all there is because they're like, hey, we are all dead because of you, David, right? And, like, we can't die. We are doomed to walk the earth until your bloodline ends. And, like, the businessman is like, my kids don't have a father. My wife is a widow. And the other couple is like, you need to kill yourself. Like, you just need to kill yourself. And so they start, like, listing ways to kill themselves. And Jack is like, hey, uh, that is my friend. Like, I don't really want him to suffer. But these other people are like, we suffered. We are dead. (laughs) So it's like, you know, definitely playing to the emotional aspect of, oh, well, this man is duty bound to kill himself because he's just going to continue killing people. But he is also a person and deserving of right a painless death or whatever. And honestly, it's a tough conversation. And I think the movie handles it really well. Yeah. And you also, it, it, it's doing interesting things with it that other movies don't do, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that the adding the like that the that his victims can't die until he dies, it just like inherently was gonna be like a more emotional tie, at least for me. I was like, well, I don't want David to suffer. Right. But like he has doomed these people to suffering. And so, honestly, like, I thought I think I have to look up the actor's name because I feel bad. Uh, it's David Naughton. Okay, yeah, David Naughton. David Naughton is a charismatic actor. I can't deny. I like the character of David, particularly by this point. Yeah, he's a little annoying at the beginning and right when he wakes up. But (laughs) honestly, 
by this point in the movie, I really like him, and like it works. Like the ending works because you feel terrible because neither option is great even though you know he has to die he has to that that there's that's it that's the only option right but like this guy is just a guy like he's just a normal nice guy who didn't deserve this and I'll get more into specifically why that really resonated with me after we're done with the plot synopsis. We're almost there. There's not that much more that happens, but... Yeah, we're kicking through it. We're doing a good job. So, David, in the movie theater, it becomes... Um, is it a full moon again, or just, like, close enough? He becomes a werewolf again. Yes. Um, and, like, I think it's appropriate that he's in a porn movie theater, because his groans could be misattributed to getting one's rocks off. Well, they, they are at first yes. because there's another random guy there. <laughs> yes, there's other people in the movie theater. It's well, very apparent. No, it's just what, well, yeah. One other guy walks in to the movie theater and sees David like writhing and groaning. And so he walks right up to him and is sitting right next to him. And David's like, leave, I'm sick. <laughs> and the guy just doesn't do anything and then David transforms and yeah. kills him. Yeah, he that that man does not live. But we hear his no. screams, so then the usher comes in <laughs> and the usher also gets killed. Yes. And, then, not- <laughs> and then a cop comes in. <laughs> uh, the cop doesn't get killed here, but um, I'm almost certain we see him die in, in what happens next. Um, but the cop comes in and then the werewolf gets out. Yes. And this, man, I fucking loved this. This is one of the craziest scenes I've ever seen in any movie ever. But Juno, please, I would like you to describe what happens. It is like the worst case scenario for anybody trying to like damage control or like keep an animal in somewhere. So the werewolf gets out and then the cop who didn't die is like running and is like, I need backup and to lock this shit down. Mm-hmm. So he like runs out, another cop comes, they like pull the shutter on the like movie theater down. Do the like front desk people make it or do they die? The only front desk person is a woman t- ticket taker. We don't see her again, so we can't really tell. So we don't know, but it's the other- terrible. The only front desk people were her and the usher, and we know the usher died. Yeah, she's gone. Yeah, but they, they she's still in the ticket booth when they lock the door, but yeah. that actually might be safer because then the wolf gets out. Yeah, because the wolf gets out, and then hordes of people come crowding around the movie theater, and it's like, there are literally cops screaming at them to go away, and yet they're running towards the spectacle. Yeah, but honestly, rings true. It's accurate. It's very accurate to human idiocy, um, but it's irritating. And I, I was yelling at my TV screen. I was like, what are you doing? Like, they're telling me to go. The thing is, they're doing what any normal human would do when cops tell you to go away. You have to look, you know? It's like a train wreck. You can't look away. If somebody was like, people are dying, if I would... The cops don't vocalize that. The cops are just like, leave, get out. You know, That's they're true. not being specific, which is their problem. That's and also, true. it wouldn't have mattered anyways, because as soon as the wolf gets out, 
it, it doesn't matter what was going to happen was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it was just going to happen. So um, the David uh, decapitates the mean detective. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, just I, yeah. <laughs> honestly, that was very cathartic because I was like, this detective is a real asshole and like is not listening to anybody and like he's the worst part of cops. Yeah. Dies, so it's fine. <laughs> um, um, but in general, I was just laughing because I was remembering everything that happens in this scene. <laughs> It's pandemonium, true pandemonium. It is chaotic. Like, there is so much happening. He's, like, running all around the place. People are dying because they're just standing there. People are dying in their cars. Like, Oh, my God. There's a shot of a car running over a guy, and it. I was, like, holy shit. Like, they show you, because this movie is not afraid to show you things. Yes. I was, that really took me back. I audibly said, what the fuck when that happened? Oh, well, and I think it does really play into the, like, you know, there can be one main issue, but then everything around it gets fucked up because, like, the driver wasn't dead and was not attacked by the werewolf. He just right. hit and ran over this man. Well, a lot of drivers are dying because they're flying through windshields like nobody's true. business. True. Um, like flies. It's true. Um, cars are crashing like really crashing, uh-huh. buses are toppling over. Um, the werewolf is also killing people. <laughs> like yeah, like there's just no holds are barred. Like everything is, is happening. Crazy, and finally Alex and Doctor Hirsch get there. Yes. Alex finally believes, and so the cops corner the wolf into an alley, and Alex breaks through the cops to go talk to and she sprints like she is running running and she runs right up to him like so she but because in her mind she's i think still remembering when david had earlier said i think you have to be killed by someone you love yep but she is just trying to get him to stop yeah she's just trying to calm him down and so she tells him that she loves him and she i don't think she has any plans to kill him She's no, just trying to talk him down. Like, he doesn't have a gun or anything. So exactly. Like she, it's just Alex. She just runs up and is trying to handle it. And like for a moment, it looks like David recognizes her and he like falters. Yeah. Uh, but then lunges at her and the cops shoot him and then he's dead. Yeah. I mean, literally, the cops shoot the wolf. We see Alex's horrified face. We see David's naked dead body. Credits. That's it. Like that's the end of the movie. It was so distressing to me that like that was where it ended because i was just like hold on now there's probably 50 plus people dead that's it that's all i get that's all there is for me okay but honestly if in a movie about david yeah the movie ends when his life ends so that that made sense to me so We've blasted through the plot synopsis. I think that's probably the fastest plot synopsis we've ever done. (laughs) I really want to get back into this idea of um, Judaism in this movie because I think it's fascinating. Yeah, talk me through it. So I want to go back to his dreams. Okay. A particular one, maybe you know which one I'm going to talk about. So David has these nightmares when he's in the hospital. Most of them are just kind of random. Uh, I will say, I think the opening of Twilight, like the opening of the first Twilight movie, is an homage to the scene where he's running through the woods chasing the deer. Yeah. yeah. Or at least they're both referring to the same like metaphor of like, chasing after something that you don't really... Yeah. And 
so that was cool. But specifically, he has a dream that was very distressing to watch, uh, where he's at home with his family, and a ton of demon Nazis break in and brutally murder him and his entire family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's not, I mean, I feel like that it's not even a metaphor at that point. Like, you're just no, like... It, that's just him. <laughs> that's just his dreams, like, going through all his anxieties, you know? Yep. And we have to consider some things about the movie. So the movie was written in the 60s. At that point, you know, the Holocaust had barely just ended, really. I think, think about how it's 2021, we're still fucking talking about 9-11. Like, Mm -hmm. 15 years removed from the Holocaust, that shit is fresh. Like, that's that's barely a wound from yesterday. That's practically a wound from today. Um, Like, you're still bleeding out on the floor. And then, you know, it's made in the 80s, which is, again, only another 20-year difference. So it's not a huge amount of time still. Um, Not even 40 years from the end of it. We know David and Jack are Jewish, partially because of the offhanded remark about his penis earlier, but also because of this nightmare he has. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, his name is David. Well, I think Kessler is a pretty... Yes, and his his full name is David Kessler. It just, it's fascinating. Uh, it's, 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 I'm not going to say too much more on it. I want to, until after I reference two articles I found on this very thing. So the first, I don't know what this site is called, but it is uh, an article uh, by John Spira. I believe that's how you say that name. And it's called Why I Love an American Werewolf in London, and you're going to have to excuse me. Spira writes, Recovering from the initial attack, our titular hero, David Kessler, played by David Naughton, lies unconscious in his hospital bed, watched over by two nurses. He's a Jew, says one. How do you know? I had a look. My life changed. To me, in suburban Oxford, Jews were hairy old German-sounding men with huge ears and a smattering of younger people who would eventually jump ship or become that. I considered Judaism obscure to the point of curiosity. I had no notion that there might be Jews in Hollywood and absolutely no notion that a Jew could be interesting. David Kessler became my hero. Wisecracking, vulnerable, an apparent master of cunnilingus, it took me a couple of years to understand that scene, and a werewolf to boot. That resonated with me a lot because I was thinking about how Jewish people kind of relate their Jew, uh, their Jewishness on screen. It really isn't ever related on screen. And if it is, it normally is in a movie about being Jewish, normally through the lens of the Holocaust. For the Jews running Hollywood, a lot of movies are very anti-Semitic. <laughs> but it was really, really fascinating to me, um, that whole kind of little, and the whole article he wrote is um, really, really good, so I do recommend checking it out, because I think it offers a really great perspective on why this movie might be beloved by some, but it, it, it got to the center of, I think, why I connected with this movie, and it's that he, you know, David is Jewish, but 
this movie recognizes that that means he's human. And a lot of movies don't necessarily take time for that. But this one does. And, you know, it also gives him space to have other anxieties. So even though anti-Semitism is a huge anxiety because so much that we, like, literally see his fear that the Nazis, which, again, aren't even 40 years gone, we know they weren't actually all gone in 1981, like that the Nazis are going to show up at his door and kill his whole family, something that his grandparents would have been dealing with. It's just, it's it's great. And then he also, on top of that, has the anxieties that every 20-something guy has. And all of that really just, to me, made David such a unique man among horror characters. Because when horror which often has a, horror films often have female leads. But when they have male leads, these men are often like the epitome of toxic. Of course, there are exceptions. We've had exceptions this season. For instance, uh, Lucius in Underworld Rise of the Lycans, I wouldn't describe him as toxic. He was enslaved. And I wouldn't describe David as toxic. A little obnoxious because he's an American, sure. But that only adds to his feeling of being an outsider, you know? He's already an outsider, and that's just masked with the American title. I mean, really, this is a Jewish werewolf in London. Yes. Is really what this movie is about. I think that that alone makes this movie still relevant today. But there's another another writer I want to shout out who also wrote a really great piece on it. Um... And it's called, this piece is on scifiwire.com or scifi.com and written by Danny Roth. And the piece is called A Jewish American Werewolf in London and the Invisible Other. Uh, The idea of the Invisible Other is something that you'll come up a lot with in academic spaces, uh, particularly academic spaces um, about like queer culture or um, sexuality or just uh, general kind of counterculture uh, ideas. It's definitely something we talked about a lot in Michelle Lakis's class at the University of Minnesota. Shout out to Michelle, uh, true homie. We both had her. Miraculously, we are different majors. Yes, a homie nonetheless, and a, a real one. This is Danny Roth really just laying out why the invisible other applies in this scenario. He gives some backstory about how he suffers from Crohn's disease, and that's the lead up into the paragraph that I'm going to read. So he says, the thing is, you never know I have a potentially life-threatening condition by looking at me. Crohn's, like many incurable conditions, is largely invisible, and it's made all the more invisible while traveling to another country where the disease I have is virtually non-existent. The experience is alienating. You feel othered by the world around you, but in a way that is almost impossible to effectively communicate. And that, in no small part, is what an American werewolf in London is all about. An American werewolf in London is the story of David Kessler, his friend Jack Goodman, and their vacation backpacking across Europe. They don't get far before winding up being attacked by a werewolf along the moors in Wales. Jack is killed, 
But David suffers an arguably worse fate. He's bitten by the werewolf, dooming him to become a bloodthirsty monster himself upon the next full moon. When David awakes in London, absolutely no one takes his werewolf fear seriously. And in a city that he doesn't really know among a sea of strangers, there's no way for David to effectively communicate the help he really needs. Think about it from this perspective. If David had lost a friend or been bitten by a werewolf at home, he would have immediately had the supporting and understanding, at least somewhat, of the family and friends around him. Instead, he's in London where he is a foreigner and truly knows no one. But because he doesn't fundamentally look different from anyone else in England, the thing that makes him different is invisible. I think that writing is... I mean, read the whole piece. I found it really powerful, but certainly that little snippet of it really gets to the heart of why I resonated with the movie, why a lot of people resonate with the movie. And as I was saying, (laughs) when you get male leads in horror, they tend to, certainly not always, but they tend to lean on the more toxic side. And certainly because Jewishness is an invisible condition, This movie could, to some viewers who, going into it, don't know a lot, seem like it's a movie about two toxic guys, toxic white Americans, annoying Europeans, and getting what's due to them for being obnoxious or whatever. But I think this movie actually has a lot of heart, and I think it's a fascinating story about being alone and having to deal with your anxieties alone, what that can do to a person, and honestly, what that can do to other people. Yeah, I think it also speaks really strongly to intergenerational issues, or maybe not so much intergenerational since we don't really touch on like anybody older or younger than David, but like what you think is the right thing to do and the burdens that you carry, right? Because like David calls home and he's talking to his younger sister and he's like, hey, like, tell our parents that I love them and that I'm sorry. And like, he's carrying the weight of his family's trauma, his own trauma, and also this new burden that has been placed on him that nobody can see that he's carrying unless he's actively a werewolf, which is like, I don't know. I think that in our series, we definitely have touched on um, lycanthropy as the other way. The the time we touched on it most was when we were talking about ginger snaps. And we talked about we talked about it there through a gender lens. We talked about the trauma that mothers inflict on their daughters. Mm -hmm. Here it's about the trauma that it's not necessarily older people inflicting it on younger people. It's an unending cycle of anti-Semitism that brutally changes an entire like ethno-religion. Yes. And I think that I don't know about Wolfman, but especially I just watched because I watched this movie and then I watched oh, um, the Wolf of Snow Hollow back to back, both a day to a day apart, and like both of them touch really strongly on the impact of your identity and connection to the people that you care about and the people that you feel an obligation to take care of, and how sometimes that burden isn't a visible burden, and until you have like a physical manifestation of the weight that you're carrying, regardless of whether or not you're a werewolf, you will not be able to appreciate, nor will the people in your life be able to appreciate the work and the effort that you put forth all the time, that you are always carrying with you until they can see it. And I think that this movie does a really good job of being like, this man is struggling. Like he, his friend is dead. He killed his, like he killed all of these people. He has 
intergenerational trauma that he's processing through his reaction and this is because he's seen wolfman but also likely because he is in a foreign country where he doesn't know anybody and he doesn't think that he is deserving or going to receive the help he needs he's like i don't need to seek help from a doctor i don't need to seek somebody who can maybe moderate my pain and my struggles i need to be apprehended i need to be punished for this thing that i'm doing Mm -hmm. which i think is a really easy way to see the carry the weight that a lot of I think the internalization of anti-Semitism that a lot of Jewish people experience and also just the way that a lot of marginalized communities carry in that like we don't necessarily think that we are deserving of better things all the time. Sometimes we think that we are deserving to carry this weight because our parents carried it because our parents' parents carried it. And even people, the person in London who cares about him the most Alex does not see his pain. She cannot relate to it. Even She even dismisses his possible Jewishness the first time it's brought up by saying it's common practice now. And yes, by 1981, circumcision was common practice, particularly in America. It remains so today. However, you can't overlook that kind of dismissiveness, you know, of an identity. When she dismisses that, she then unintentionally dismisses any future kind of trauma that he might bring up because you know to her this is just a normal normal meaning non-jewish 20-something man Mm -hmm. you know also i can't i can't end this episode without bringing up right before he transforms he runs outside and he's wearing his nyu uh shirt i noticed i don't know why i remember he's wearing that but he is and two little blonde girls laugh at him yes they point and they laugh yeah and I, I could not get that image out of my head. I still can't really. And I like thinking about it now, it, it really kind of adds into that, everything that we've been talking about, you know? And it's little tiny small details like that, that for me made this movie so brilliant and so really lovely and beautiful. I think this is a movie... I think now, it's not a movie I would say that needs a remake, but if we were to remake any werewolf movies, this and Ginger Snaps would be the ones I would be most interested in 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 re-returning to these stories, because I think they have the most to say, frankly. Yeah, and they're appropriate, especially now as we look at the, like, really disgusting turmoil within America and the anti-Semitism that is aggressively rampant. Also... That's not to say that these movies haven't aged well for today's audiences. Right. Both Ginger Snaps and An American Werewolf in London are good watches today. I also think we these are stories that we can return to with maybe companion remakes that are in conversation with the original and continue the conversation. That's what what I mean by I think these movies can could be due for remakes. Not that I think they, you know on like production value alone need to be remade or anything or that like the world has changed so much that these movies are now out of touch quite the opposite actually the world has changed a lot but in the 40 years since american werewolf in london came out and it is the 40 year anniversary this year Mm -hmm. the world hasn't changed that much no and in the 20 years 21 years since ginger snaps came out the world has not changed that much so yeah i don't know i don't know why my call to remakes came right now but i think both movies a would be a great double feature b the conversation can continue you know that's Mm -hmm. all or even you know a legacy sequel or something like yeah i think that like a 
um, like the town that dreaded sundown, like that style of remake where like we recognize that an American Rail of London exists. And also, oh my God, look, it's still happening now, 41 years later. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Honestly, Town of Dread at Sundown has some similar ideas going on with it as this movie. I, I mean, that movie is more about like intergener. I mean, that movie is about intergenerational trauma. Don't get me wrong. But that's about like intergenerational trauma and refers to something horrible that happened in your hometown, you know. But they are related kind of in that way. And the way that like that can come back to hurt and kill people. Mm-hmm later that'd be an interesting double feature too i'm always thinking about like what would be a good like double feature triple feature and those are both ones that i would not mind screening ginger snaps in american werewolf and also town which ended sundown in american werewolf i just think these movies are in conversation with each other which is a phrase i throw out all the time when i say that i just mean that like these movies are thematically related even if they have different viewpoints the viewpoints kind of bounce off of each other in a very conversational way. So when you watch the movies, particularly if you watch them back to back, there's a debate happening in your head and on screen that can be very rewarding um, if you allow yourself to view movies that way. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm really glad we talked about this movie. Me too. I think I've been like in like unless of a consuming media for pleasure way and more of a trying to educate myself in the world way I've been exploring more about like the experience of being like a Jewish person in America and like the anti-semitism in relation to like proud boys and conservatism and really horrible things that you're like wow there's so many horrible white people in the world and they hate other white people too. Yes, we are six days removed as a time of recording this from the day when the Nazis stormed the Capitol. Right, and I think that it's appropriate that we're talking about this now because this would be a terrifying thing for, like, like I cannot speak to the trauma of being Jewish because I am not even a hair Jewish, but it's terrifying to see literal Nazis so emboldened to be themselves and so empowered by people that we have given unlimited agency to and it's disgusting to me this is getting a lot deeper than I wanted it to but like I think that horror movies are a really healthy way and also like more palatable way to learn about maybe things that you don't know a lot about and then connecting them to real life events and being like yeah you don't really need a werewolf in this movie for this to be horrific like for you to be disgusted and terrified and in a lot of ways other than, you know, mauling 56 plus people, David is a victim. Like, he's yeah. suffering. I don't know. I think it's really valuable. I think everybody should watch it, personally. Yeah. I am a hair Jewish. Um, and by that, I mean, if we look ethnically, I am more than a quarter Jewish. <laughs> um, but also, um, my grandma's Jewish. Um, I've been socially Jewish before. And what's so interesting about this movie, I mean, we're talking about we were just talking about the real life horror of like Nazis, like people who actively hate Jewish people and want to exterminate them. But what this movie gets into is the insidious nature of people who don't actively hate Jewish people, but rather people who like dismiss them. Yes. You know? And we talked a lot about that last June, not us specifically, but like as a nation 
kind of, it left a lot of people's heads immediately after about how like there are racists, like capital R racists who act like KKK members who actively want to hurt black people. And then there are lowercase racists, the ones who maybe don't outwardly like shout hooray when the system does what it's meant to do, but who still participate in it and in less obvious ways uphold white patriarchy in a way that is detrimental to everyone who is not a straight white man. Healthy straight white man. Because, I mean, the second you're unhealthy or deemed unhealthy, you may as well be dead. Yeah, it's not desirable. Yeah, and, you know, anybody who is silent or passive in the face of injustice is complicit. Yes. And it's perpetuating an issue. And it's truly disgusting disgusting to me to be surrounded by so many people who are not outraged, who are like, that's bad, but like, what am I going to do about it? Literally anything. Do anything. Next time I, your aunt says something racist, call her out. Like, yeah. just yeah. do it. I strongly urge everyone to watch the Amazon Prime series Hunters, which is all about Jewish people hunting Nazis in the 70s. If you are Jewish, Fair warning, it's a hard watch, but it's also one of the best shows I've ever watched. Really cathartic. I mean, the opening scene of the first episode, horrific, but necessary. It is an exploitation show. You need to know that going in. And it is also a necessary show that especially for non-Jews is required watching. Other than that, we decided that we were going to start ending our episodes just talking about other media we like. So we did like, I think we did like American Werewolf in London. We are going to move away from grading movies because it seems kind of arbitrary. Yeah. Uh, I have a grade I'd give this movie, but maybe it would change tomorrow or it would change the more I read into more academic work on it. Like, or like the value of the grade I give it could change, you know? So like, even if uh, the actual letter didn't change, it could hold more or less weight in my head or whatever. So same for judo obviously so we're gonna move away from grading movies and just leaving you with our thoughts on them uh which we have laid out so now we're gonna move on to other things that we like this does not have to be anything we've watched recently this is just talking about a movie or tv show or book or music or any kind of media really that we like to always end on a positive note no matter how we felt about the movie we just talked about I'll go first today. Yes, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to talk about music today. I'm going to talk about some music that I love. So I've been going a little deeper into Dua Lipa's discography recently, uh, particularly her more recent album, Future Nostalgia. Funny enough, we were going to review that album on on our Scott Pilgrim episode, but we just talked about that movie so much we didn't have time. But I revisited it recently, and yeah, it's great. And it really sucks that it came out during a pandemic when we couldn't, like, be dancing to it every weekend. Because it's a great album, uh, really freeing, and actually has made me feel better about the pandemic situation when I listen to it. Because I can imagine that, you know, things will be better and we can have fun again. I like that. Um, that's that's my my fun media of the week. What about you, Juno? Some fun media that I'm doing is also music related. Uh, specifically, one song that my siblings actually showed to me is called Daisy by Kate Davis from her album Trophy, which I think is really good. It's not necessarily super upbeat, but I am definitely in my um, downward swing 
depressive indie music right now. So I'm listening to a lot of Phoebe Bridgers, Julian Baker. Mm. Uh, but Daisy is a song about growing up and um, getting a little bit less close with your parents. And it's honestly really beautiful and it's really catchy. So even if your mom is crying while you listen to it, it's really fun to listen to. And I think everybody should hear it. Awesome. Well, I liked that episode. That felt like good conversation. I agree. I like this. I like it. I think that part of what was really hard with like the Underworld series and like even New Moon was it was like, I could talk about this movie easily. I want to talk about its connection to the real world. And I don't necessarily feel a lot of that in a lot of the world movies that we've talked about. So I think that like this movie, especially, and also tomorrow, I think you'll really like um, The Wolf of Yeah, just, just um, from what you've been, what you teased today, I'm excited to watch it. I have another Zoom meeting after this, so it's going to have to be after that. I'm going to have to watch Wolfman tonight, so you're good. But yeah, let me know what you think about it, because I, I really will. I found it odious, and I loved every moment. <laughs> that kind of movie, you know, where you're like, oh my god, I hate this so much. I love it. <laughs> wow, I'm really excited now. So yes, obviously, tomorrow we're recording it, but a week or two weeks, depending on if a game episode comes out first or not. The next movie we're talking about is The Wolf of Snow Hollow from 2020. So get on that. Uh, watch that before our next episode. Yeah. For now on an American werewolf in London. That's it. That's it.